Today I want to talk about something that we, we hear a lot about, but maybe approach it in a little bit different way. I want to talk about grace. In the book of 1 Samuel, there is a story of, of a man named Saul. Saul was anointed to be the first king over the people of Israel. As a king, Saul was a complete disaster. As a soldier, he was, he was a mighty soldier. He was just a disaster as a king, though. And because of his disobedience to God, God had told him some things he could do and couldn't do, and specifically told him some things to do, and he disobeyed God. And because of that, God told Saul that his kingdom would be taken away from him. And not only him, but also from his family. And remember in those days that a king's oldest son took over the kingdom when the king died. And so what this prophet Samuel did is he went to Saul and said, God has taken his anointing away from you as king, but also as well as your descendants. So none of your family will ever be king. And even though Saul was told by the prophet Samuel that he was going to remove him as king and his descendants would not take the throne, Saul would not accept this message. He just, okay, whatever, Samuel. In the meantime, there was a young man, in fact, he was a teenager named David, that was anointed to be the king. And he was anointed by the same prophet Samuel that had informed Saul that he would no longer be king in the future. But for the time being, Saul remained as king. In fact, after quite a show of military might by David, specifically he killed a giant with a slingshot, Saul took David onto his staff at the palace. So here is this scenario. Saul has been told you won't be king any longer, pretty soon. Your family is not going to take over as king. Somebody else will take over as king from a different family. Here's this young man, David. He's been anointed to be the next king. The thing we have to realize is Saul doesn't know that David has been anointed to be the next king. And Saul brings David into his palace to serve on his staff. While serving there, David formed a, a very deep fr friendship and a bond with Saul's son named Jonathan. And because of Saul's stubbornness, he had never accepted the fact that Jonathan would never be king and would never take his place on the throne. And there were probably some conversations between Saul and his son Jonathan that went something like this. Jonathan, you don't need to worry about that crazy old prophet Samuel. You'll sit on the throne one day, my son. I'll see to it. But Jonathan wasn't so sure about that because Jonathan had faith in God. And he knew that God had spoken that Saul would lose his place on the throne. And as Jonathan and David became closer, I'm sure that the conversation took place at some point about what was going to happen. At some point in the conversation, I believe that David told his, his best friend in the world that Samuel has come to my house, and Samuel has anointed me to be the next king. I'm going to take your father's place. In addition to that, Jonathan, I'm going to take your place. No doubt, he told Jonathan, if your father finds out that I've been anointed as the next king, he's going to kill me. 
So Jonathan, please don't tell him. We see that these two friends knew then and there that their loyalty would be tested to the limit. And poor Jonathan is in this impossible situation. His father would try to kill his best friend if he found out that his best friend had been anointed as the next king. And Jonathan is caught in the middle of all of this. And he had to choose which side he would take. Either he would accept the word of God that had gone out from the prophet and side with his friend, or he could resist the word of God and side with his father who was just absolutely denying what the prophet Samuel had said, and he could take a stand with his father. Either way, Jonathan knew that he was headed right into the middle of a great controversy and conflict. So Jonathan's choice was to make a pledge, a covenant of loyalty to David. If God had chosen David to be the next king, who am I to stand in his way? This is my friend, and besides that, God has said that my father won't be the king any longer, and if God has anointed David, then I'm going to just go with my friend David here and I'll support him. In fact, we read that Jonathan made a covenant with David. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. The important word to notice here is covenant. In other words, Jonathan says to his friend David, he says, Look here, David, whatever the cost, whatever the future holds, whatever it takes, I want you to know that you can count on me. The covenant of loyalty that, that Jonathan spoke to David is a very special thing. And it's not something that's found very often in our day, that when people give their word, that they absolutely keep their word no matter what. In fact, the Hebrews had a, a particular word for a covenant of loyalty. They called it hased. Hased means simply a steadfast love. It's a love that will last, a love that you can count on. It's sometimes translated in the Bible as faithfulness. In 1 Samuel 20, when Jonathan is pledging his covenant of loyalty to David, you will find that the word hased is used twice. And both times it's translated as faithfulness. And I'm sure that as David and Jonathan spent time as friends in the, in the palace, at the point in some conversation, David looks at Jonathan and says, please show me hesed or faithfulness. David says, I need you to be the person I can count on, Jonathan. Will you be that person? And Jonathan pledges his allegiance to David. Then in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15, let's read that. Jonathan asked for something in return. And thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not. In other words, you won't kill me. Verse 15. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Remember this scripture right here. Do not ever cut off your kindness to my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. This is what Jonathan asked of David. Remember me. I will be faithful to you. I will pledge that even when everybody else is killed, please don't let my family be killed. Because of the word of the Lord, Jonathan knows for certain that his friend David is going to be the king. He also knew that in that day, when a king came to the throne, it was customary as a show of power to kill off all the previous king's family. Now, that was a couple reasons. It would keep down the threat of a rebellion. 
And it would, it would keep things in line so that, that everybody knew this is the king and this is his family. The old king and the old regime is gone. It was simply a way that most kings of that day consolidated their power. And understanding this, Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But David, please show me kindness. Show me said, Like that of the Lord, as long as I live so that I will not be killed, please do not ever cut off your said or your faithfulness from my family. He goes on to say, David, you can count on my pledge. You can count on my loyalty. And he looks back at David and he says, can I count on yours? In response, David reaffirms his oath. In 1 Samuel 20 and 17, he says, yes, I will. Then in verse 23, as David and Jonathan part from this, probably the most important conversation they've ever had, Jonathan looks back at David and he makes this point one more time in verse 23. He says, and about the matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. Just in case you forgot, David, and just in case down the road you forget what we just made a covenant between ourselves about, the Lord is a witness to what we just pledged each other. We made a promise and God is a witness to that promise. And God will hold you accountable to that promise. So in time, Saul finds himself in a battle with the Philistines, or the Philistines, whichever you prefer. And Saul was killed in this battle. In addition to that, two of Saul's other sons were killed, as well as David's friend Jonathan. And just as the prophet Samuel had prophesied, David became king. So everything that has happened has been exactly as God had set it up. And several years later, when David had subdued all of his adversaries in Israel, he began to think back one day, he was sitting on his throne, and he thinks back to his friend Jonathan, his best friend he'd ever had. And he thinks back of the covenant that he had made with his friend Jonathan, Second Samuel 9 and 1. And David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So we see that David, now the king, calls in his advisors and he says, is there anyone left that was in Saul's family or his servants or anyone in the house of Saul that is left that I can show kindness to? Look at verses 2 through 4. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. And the king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked, and Ziba answered, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Do 
if it seems that I'm a little emotional about this message today, it's because I already read the end. And I know where this is headed. And there are parts of this that are just so overwhelming. When I realize how much it really means to us today, too. So in the, the answer to the question, is there anyone left in Saul's house, David's advisors tell him that there's this man named Ziba. He had been a servant of Saul's, and David calls in this man named Ziba, and he, he tells David that there's a son of Jonathan that lives in a town called Lodabar. However, he's crippled in both feet. Second Samuel 4 and 4. Let's see what happened there. Jonathan, the son of Saul had a son who was lame in both feet. He was about five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. This is where Saul and Jonathan were killed fighting the Philistines. His nurse picked him up and fled because she knew that they were probably going to be killed. But as she hurried to leave, she fell. he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. What had happened that when Saul and, and and Jonathan and his other two sons were killed in this battle, word gets back to the palace, and they know that whoever's coming in next is probably just going to wipe everybody out. So this, this nanny picks up this young boy named Mephibosheth. He was about five, and she tries to run out with him. She drops him. He becomes crippled in both his feet. And here's this person who was once a prince, that is now living in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar literally means no pasture. There was, there was no place for pasture. There was no fields. That's another translation is a land of nothing. No hope. You only ended up in Lodabar when you were crushed by the storms of life and believe that life was over for you. That's the only reason you went to Lodabar. It was a place of nothingness. Lodabar was the most decrepit of all of the slums in Samaria. It was a place where the rejected of society came to live and where the outlaws came to hide. It wasn't a place you wanted to go. Picture this for a moment. The one time king of Israel's grandson living in this place. People mocking him. Maybe as he, as he would go down that road and they would say, look, here's the Jewish prince on his crutches. I believe that his name became painful in his own ears when he heard people make fun of him. I can see that some of the men, they would kick his crutches out from under him and then laugh as he falls onto the filthy street. <laughs> and then once they passed, the boy would try to get himself back up on his crutches so he could go on. And children would possibly shout mockingly as he made his way slowly down the street on those crutches, look, here comes the king in the middle of the slums. 
At first, he'd probably try to fight back, but over the years, his pride was crushed. And his will so defeated that he wanted nothing more than to die in the howling wilderness. This descendant of Saul, Saul's very grandson, Jonathan's son, an heir to the throne, went from living in the king's palace to living in the land of nothing. It's interesting to note that when you go back to the story of David and Ziba, that when David called Ziba and said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? And he said, yes, there's this young man. He's the son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in both feet. The only thing David said was, where is he? You see, David didn't ask, okay, so you say he's crippled. How crippled is he? Does that mean he has to use a cane? Or does he have to use crutches? He didn't ask, is he capable of getting around by himself, or am I going to have to provide something to carry somebody to carry him around? You see, David didn't care that Mephibosheth was crippled. He didn't care if he had a limp, or he didn't care if somebody had to pick him up and carry him everywhere he went. He wasn't put off by that. He didn't look down on him for that. He just accepted him, limp and all. The only significant thing about Mephibosheth, as far as David was concerned, was his relationship to Jonathan. If he's Jonathan's son, nothing else matters. You see, God doesn't care about our disabilities either. Maybe we're not crippled in our feet. The only thing that matters to God is that if we are sons and daughters of His, that's all that matters. You see, our handicaps, our limitations, our past failures, our inadequacies, our sins, inadequacies and our sins, none of that will cause God to not accept us when we come to Him. He welcomes us to this personal friendship and this fellowship with Him and he gives us a place of honor with him, not because we're good or deserving, but because of grace. So David sends his people back to gather up Mephibosheth and his family and his servants and bring them back to the palace. And we see that when Mephibosheth finally is, is before David, probably knowing in his mind or thinking in his mind that I'm getting ready to be ex executed. They've only brought me back here for one reason, because Saul was my grandfather, and now this new king has taken over that I don't know, and they're going to call me in and have me executed. And he stands before Saul, and you see that he falls on his face. And then David says something to you that is so incredible. 2 Samuel verses 9 and 7. Don't be afraid. David said to him, For I will surely show you kindness, or said, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. 
Look at Mephibosheth's response in verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And David calls in Ziba. And he tells him, You know what? I don't want you just to bring Mephibosheth and his family. I want you to bring your family here too. In fact, all the land that Saul and Jonathan and all his people owned, that will be the land that you will take care of. And you'll take care of all Mephibosheth's family. That land's yours now. 2 Samuel 9, 11 and 13. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And in verse 13, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. You've probably heard people say that the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Actually, if you search the Bible, you won't find that anywhere. The fact is that God helps those who can't help themselves, as well as those that can. You see, grace is often defined and described as unmerited favor, or, or being shown favor or kindness for something when we're not deserving of it. See, salvation isn't anything we deserve. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves worthy of salvation. No matter what anybody tells you, there are people that will tell you before you can get saved, you have to go do this, 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 and this, and you have to change your life and do this. No. The changing, once we've repented, God forgives us of our sins, and the Spirit of God comes to live in us, and that's what helps us to change. You see, we can't do it on our own. We can no more make ourselves deserving of salvation than Mephibosheth could have done to make himself deserving of sitting at the king's table. But God shows us chesed, or faithfulness, because he loves us and because of his grace. And maybe you're here today and you have experienced your own personal Lodabar. Maybe you're still living there today. There are a lot of people there today. Hiding out in a modern day Lodabar for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you feel like it's what you deserve. Maybe it's because of, of a past sin, a past of abuse, a past of addiction, a broken relationships, economic disaster, and the list goes on for why people feel that they deserve to live in Lodabar. And perhaps you feel as Mephibosheth did that, why try? There's nothing, nothing left. It's all lost. Maybe you've attempted to, to get back up as Mephibosheth did several times when he fell from his crutches, only to have someone kick them out from under you again and you fall right back down. Maybe you too, as Mephibosheth did, 
feel that your pride has been crushed and your will has been so defeated that you too want nothing more than to die in the howling wilderness. But let me assure you of something. There is hope. You see, you don't have to live in Lodabar, that place of nothing. Because as there was for Mephibosheth, even more so today, there is grace for you. Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He didn't just dole it out a little bit. Here's a little bit. Here's just a little bit of grace. He lavished it on us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There's nothing we did to deserve it. It's grace. As much as David loved his friend Jonathan, it doesn't even begin to compare with how much God loves you. As faithful as David was to the covenant that he made with Jonathan, it doesn't compare to the faithfulness of God toward us. You see, we are all disabled in some way, to different degrees, by sin. But regardless of where you find yourself today, because of God's grace, there is hope and there is restoration. And just as David brought Mephibosheth into his family and treated him as one of his own children, God has adopted us into his family even though we too are undeserving. We too deserve death. And instead, He made us sons. I want to look at one final picture from the story of David and Mephibosheth. In the palace one day, and towards evening, and all of a sudden it's dinner time, and the dinner bell rings, and we see all of David's sons come to the table. And off in the distance, there's a sound. It's kind of a thump, scrape, thump, scrape. And everyone at the table watches as Mephibosheth comes into the room. His crutch is thumping on the floor, followed by the scraping of his lame legs. And he struggles into the room and rather awkwardly finds his place at the table. And he slips into his seat probably feeling a bit ashamed because he's delayed dinner once again. 
And everyone bows their head, and, and David prays. And he thanks God for the abundance of food that he has allowed each one of them. And then something happens. After the prayer, Mephibosheth, he looks up. And he looks around the table, his eyes pausing for a brief moment on each of David's sons sitting around that table. And he notices something that he's never seen before. As he sits at the table, everyone looks the same. For the first time in his life, and for the first time in all the meals that they've eaten at the table there in the palace, he realizes he has no reason to be ashamed for his infirmities anymore. Because the tablecloth covers his feet. And I ask you this, did Mephibosheth understand grace? The parallel for us is this. When sin came into the world, humanity suffered a fall, which has left us each and every one permanently crippled on earth. We're not crippled in our feet like Mephibosheth was, but we are morally crippled. Unable to walk on the paths of righteousness on our own. No matter how hard we try, we cannot please God through our own efforts. But God wants to rescue each and every one of us from our own personal Lodabar, our place of barrenness and desolation, and from our condition of brokenness and depravity. We may have well been hiding from God, but he searched us out. He searched us out. He found us and rescued us from ourselves, just like David searched out, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? God has searched us out too. Psalm 73 and 28 says that, As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Let's read that again. As for me, it is good to be near God. It's because in His presence there is peace and joy and eternal pleasures. And that place that David wrote about right there is a far cry from Lodabar. Where we lived before we knew God. We as Mephibosheth are, as Mephibosheth was, we are deficient. We are defective and fundamentally flawed. But God in His amazing grace has given us an inheritance that can never fade away, a place of honor in His presence. He invites us to come and sit with Him and to eat with Him. And we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are heirs of God and we are joint heirs with Christ. 
And it's all because of grace. Could we purpose today that we will do this? That today we will rejoice in the grace of God. God bless you. Take a